know, I see a leader as someone who is setting direction, someone who is uh, building culture, uh, driving inspiration and vision, uh, driving the North Star, where managers are um, more in the details of the day-to-day work that the staff are are doing, looking at deadlines, um, tracking deadlines, holding people accountable to deadlines. And this is Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. My day job is running TigerCom, a firm that counsels companies that are helping move the U.S. economy onto a more sustainable footing. I get to meet the people who are succeeding at building, funding, or advising the most successful companies in your sectors. So each show, we try to bring you usable insights from these leaders so you can apply them to the business of running your business. Hey, Clean Techers, welcome back to another episode of Scaling Clean, where we tap the experience of clean economy CEOs for actionable insights on building teams and running companies. You know, while most of our focus is on leaders of companies, there's a lot of management wisdom available from CEOs of clean economy organizations, like we did in our interview with Abby Hopper. In Miranda Ballantyne, we have a CEO with both .com and .org experience and some .gov experience to boot. Most know her as the head of the Clean Energy Buyers Alliance. But Miranda's experience runs a gamut that includes stints as a sustainability director of Walmart, consulting through David Gardner Associates, and as Air Force Assistant Secretary managing energy budgets for 170 military installations. She also was CEO of Toronto-based Constant Power that develops distributed energy projects. And I'm looking forward to learning how her career of wide-ranging experiences has shaped her approach to building and running clean economy teams. Miranda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. It's really a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to it. All right. Tell me about your background. If you were going to summarize your career to date, how would you do it? Yeah, I wish I could do it easily. It's been it's been a, a wavy path, a snaky path, so to speak. <laughs> um, and, and in fact, it, um, <clears throat> lo and behold, my, my undergraduate work is actually in neuropsychology. So I spent my undergraduate years uh, studying hippocampal memory and running rats through mazes. So how, how did I get from there to... Um, working on decarbonizing the power system. Um, it's it's a it's a, a very twisty and very fun story. I've, um, but I would say that the common thread through all of it is that I have a real passion for um, bringing my efforts to workplaces that allow me to um, make the world a better place. And and I've done that in a lot of different ways um, over the years. And really didn't get into clean energy until. Um, until about 2001, 2002. And we'll, we'll talk about the details of how that all happened. But um, I t- I'll tell you, I use my undergraduate uh, neuropsychology degree every day. So, <laughs> Who were your most important mentors and what did you learn from them? Oh, goodness. I, you know, Mike, when you asked me this question, I thought, how can I possibly narrow it down? I have had the opportunity to learn from every single person that has been my boss um, or been a colleague throughout my career. So it was hard to narrow this down. Um, so I would say that that starting with my first bosses out of college when I was you know, 20, 22 years old and, 
and working in a retail clothing shop. We were opening a retail clothing store and after we unpacked all the boxes, there I was, you know, fresh out of college, in the dumpster, breaking down boxes and stamping on them with my feet. And the regional vice president of this clothing brand was there in the dumpster with me, stamping on these on these boxes. And I thought, wow, you know, this vice president is breaking down boxes in the dumpster. I didn't I didn't know the word servant leadership at that time. But I was definitely struck by this this person. I don't even recall his name. Uh, so could I call him a mentor? Maybe, maybe not. But very early in my career, I was influenced by by servant leaders. Um, then fast fast forward, and um, you know, I went from the sciences and in my undergrad world in, into working in business. And you mentioned one of my um, one of my early clean energy jobs was working for a consulting firm here in the DC area called David Gardner and Associates. Um, and David was really an important mentor to me, in, in part because he taught me how to write from a business frame. Um, in the sciences, you write very, very differently than you write in the business world and certainly in the consulting world. Um, so he helped me shift from that passive voice that the science community uses to active voice. Uh, and, and he would always say, write like the New York Times. Everything you need to say needs to go in the, in the very first paragraph. <laughs> I mean, in the military, we call that bottom line up front. Um, but David was a, a really influential uh, person in, in my career. Uh, later, one I think one of the real unsung heroes of the renewable energy movement, and maybe, Mike, someone that you should uh, consider adding to your podcast in the future, is a woman named Kim Sailors Laster. She was the vice president of energy at Walmart when, when I joined Walmart. And Walmart has a, a phenomenal culture of mentorship. And she became my mentor and had so many pearls of wisdom as I um, got married during those years, uh, became a stepmother during those years, became a mother during those years. She really gave me an, uh, incredible pearls of wisdom. Um, and, and truly is one of the unsung heroes. Uh, you know, I got to observe her navigating the complexities of the fortune number one company of the in the world who had just set this 100% renewable energy goal. Uh, she single-handedly managed the first rooftop solar PPA, one of the first, if not the first, utility-scale wind PPA, uh, and watching the grace and professionalism with which she managed those influential conversations was was really powerful for me as a as a growing leader. Likewise, I'll, I'll just share one story um, about a way that Kim really influenced my my life and career path. Um, I was at a moment where I had two option two career option paths in front of me, both at Walmart. One was a promotion, and, and one was not a promotion. Um, and, you know, I'd always sort of thought in my mind, you always take a promotion when a promotion's offered to you. Um, but she, she framed it differently for me. She said, you know, um, ask yourself three questions. Uh, presuming, presuming that uh, financially you can manage the non-promotion path equally as well. Um, but ask yourself qu three questions. One, um, where can I, which of the jobs allows me 
to make the greatest difference for my organization. So sort of where do my superpowers really lend themselves best? Second question, um, you know, if you have the good fortune to be able to ask this question, which which job would allow me to um, have the most positive impact in the world? Um, and then the third question is, which job is just going to be the most fun? Where am I going to wake up and just have the most fun? And it was interesting. Simple framework, simple framework. But when I thought of this uh, fork in the road in that way, it was very clear to me that I was not going to take the promotion and instead mm. um, take a, a lateral move that allowed me to be working more directly in the substance that I was interested in, which was um, decarbonizing energy and, and helping Walmart develop a strategy to achieve this 100% audacious, 100% renewable energy goal. Um, and that framework has stuck with me over many, many, many years. Um, and I've used it in many situations, including when um, I had an out of the blue opportunity to go serve and in, um, in the Pentagon um, as a political appointee, which was not, not a career path that I had ever anticipated or or sought. I love that. That's really good. I invented time machine today. You and I go back in time when you were first someone's boss. I bring a video camera. I tape you. We then come back to present and I tape you being someone's boss now. We split screen the two pieces of footage. What are the differences that you and I see? A lot more gray hair. <laughs> hey, watch it there, young lady. You're 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 hitting home. You gotta. <laughs> you know, I I started managing people really really early in my career, Mike. Uh, and uh, and and honestly, for most of my career, I've managed uh, people quite quite a bit more uh, senior to me that have more years of experience. So it's been a really interesting. Um, journey and both learning to manage people and learning to lead people, which are not necessarily the same thing. So if I looked back to when I was you know, 22 years old and a, and a store manager at a small retail store and managing a small staff, and I fast forward to now where I'm the, you know, the CEO of a 50, 60 person organization, or when I was the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force when my team was 60 people, but we oversaw 55,000 civil engineers across the government. Some things look real similar and some things look quite a lot different. Uh, I have always had a deep passion for helping people identify what they love and what they, what they get out of work. Whether that is as simple as what I need to get out of work is a paycheck and really what I love is raising my kids or mountain biking. And, and so, you know, helping people find the value in what, you know, what their truth is and work all the way through to um, helping people identify um, what's the right level that they actually really love. You know, I think there's a myth in today's world that you need to continually get promoted. I just talked about that a moment ago when actually you can promote yourself right out of the work that you really love to do. Uh, so when that's I look across point. my career, that's a really that's, good point. That, yeah. And, and when I look back across my career, I, I would say that that is, 
an ap- approach to leading people that is has been consistent since the very early years that I just really love getting to know people genuinely and helping them find meaning and value to their work, whether it's selling cellular phones or whether it's trying to solve the climate crisis. Um, I'll tell you what's very different. I tend to be quite extroverted, Mike. Um, and as an extrovert, I like to think aloud. I like to be creative and problem solving. I like to do devil's advocate. Um, you know, sometimes people say there's Miranda A and Miranda B and that the two Mirandas <laughs> can argue both sides of an issue. Um, and I've discovered as a leader, the higher up I go in organizations, the less uh, helpful that kind of thinking aloud can be. Mm-hmm. Um And, you know, as a leader, you still just think of yourself as you. For me, I'm just me, right? Um, But once I reached a certain level, I realized that when I was thinking out loud, people were either taking it as the direction, okay, we're going to go do this, um, or if I was creatively problem solving, sometimes it felt confusing to folks beneath me. Um, And this really became very clear when I was in the Pentagon and uh, here's a funny story. We were visiting a base and I I wondered aloud, huh, I wonder why the doors are painted that color. And the next thing you know, I, I was had a briefing on my calendar where people were explaining to me why the doors were painted that color. <laughs> you know. So uh, you and that that has only uh, accelerated as as a CEO leading people that um the sphere within which one can uh, do that creative banter, thinking aloud becomes much, much smaller. And as a leader, I have had to become much more explicitly clear mm-hmm. when a decision is made that we're moving out on versus we're still in, in brainstorming mode. So I would say something's very similar to my early years as a manager, just my passion for helping people grow and find meaning in their lives and careers um, and that that link between lives and careers. And then some things um, have shifted in terms of um, in terms of how I manage and lead people. Give me a few sentences to distinguish managing and leading. I like that you distinguish them. I'd like to hear your just two, three sentence difference definition of each. Yeah, yeah. This is um, the the distinction between managing people and leading people um, is truly one that I'm still growing into, truth be told, Um, in part because I am a leader who really is very passionate about the subject matter and the content. Um, So I, I like to go deep into the content, which sometimes can feel to folks like managing um in a way that that um, is is more hands on, I would say, than what they would hope for from a CEO. So I, you know, I see a leader as someone who is setting direction, someone who is um, building culture, uh, driving inspiration and vision, uh, driving the North Star, where managers are um, more in the details of the day to day work that the staff are are doing, looking at deadlines, um, tracking deadlines, holding people accountable to deadlines. Um, And certainly as SEBA has grown in the last year, for example, Mike, we have really built out our vice president tier. 
And as that vice president here has built out at SEBA, um, I have had to hand more and more of the day-to-day management of the organization to the leadership team, to the vice presidents, and really focus more on leading the troops, finding the North Star, linking the work to the big vision and the outcomes we're trying to achieve. Um, so, so that's how I would describe the distinction, at least as I see it. What advice would you have for young CEOs in their first CEO job, whether it's .org or .com? What advice do you have for them? Okay, so the, the, the one other thing I would add about leading an organization as a CEO, in addition to the culture, the vision, the strategy, there's two other important components. Uh, one is resourcing, and the second is problem solving. The more senior you get in the organization, the bigger the problems that come to you. If there are small problems, people in the manager, director, and vice president tier solve them. Um, So those would be the other two things that I would add to that distinction between managing and leading. Well, as as it happens, Mike, I will be talking to a a classroom of freshman and sophomore students tomorrow um, (laughs) at my nephew's nephew's college in Asheville, North Carolina. So I'm really looking forward to it. And now you've teed me up for the for nice. that discussion. Nice. Uh, what I always like, what I always like to, to tell young people who are thinking about entering a career in clean energy, a career in corporate sustainability, um, is first and foremost, I think one of the most important pieces of self-knowledge that you can glean early in your career is whether you are more of an entrepreneur or whether you are more of an intrapreneur. They are very different skill sets. Um, And certainly in college, there's a lot of celebration of entrepreneurship. You can join entrepreneur clubs. You can take classes on entrepreneurship. Everyone celebrates people having startups. Um, There's very little discussion, even in colleges today, about being an intrapreneur. Uh, And the skill sets required to influence and persuade and move big systems, both types of of leaders in the clean energy, sustainability, climate change movement are absolutely critical. We need the entrepreneurs breaking glass, building new things, coming up with wild and crazy ideas. And it is those large existing institutions, whether it's massive companies like Walmart or massive government agencies like the Department of Defense or big universities, just the number of zeros behind the impact that they can have when you can move those big ships is really astronomical. So, you know, I mentioned before about my my mentor, Kim Sailors Laster, and the, the influence and persuasion that it took when no other companies had done rooftop solar power purchase agreements, when no other big companies had set uh, supply chain scope three greenhouse gas emission reduction targets, for for her to navigate the system of lawyers, um, uh, the the general counsels, the contracting agents, the the chief financial officer, it's a a different skill set. And yet when you can move these big companies as an intrapreneur, uh, it's really astounding the level of impact you can have. 
So I love to tell young people to explore that. Being a consultant is a great way to explore that because you can have clients that are big clients that you're helping to move big big ships. You can have clients that are small clients that you're helping to, to break glass, but do some studying and try out different jobs in, early in your career. Or second, I would say what, what we've already talked about a little bit in this podcast, um, don't go up for up's sake. Um, again, I think as a society, we celebrate promotion, promotion, promotion. And the reality is each level, whether it's an analyst type of role or a manager level role or a director or a vice president or a chief, uh, you know, the C-suite, they each do very different things. Uh, and as, as we said before, you might promote yourself right out of the things you love to do. So really, really finding where are you waking up and just having a blast? There is, you know, there is no reason that if you love analytics and you love just digging into those details, there's no reason you need to be a vice president because you're not going to do a lot of analytics there. You're going to have people doing analytics for you, right? And then my last piece of advice, my third piece of advice that I would give to young to young folks, um, and I do give to young folks and to myself every day, is do an amazing job at every job you have. Um, I find that a lot of people always have their sights on what's next um, and are talking about, well, what do I need to do to get this promotion or that job? Whatever job you have, do an amazing job at it. You know, I just think if you really do a phenomenal job, you can learn from what you're doing now and you will be seen and your talents will be tapped and you'll have the opportunity to grow. So do an amazing job at the job you're doing now. Is there a subset of advice you would give to young women professionals? I have a two-thirds female firm. I sometimes think I am, I've got limitations on my ability to mentor and to coach them that I may not even be aware of. So I'm really, whenever I have uh, a female guest we're interviewing, I really like to bore in on this question that they can speak to from their own experience. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one I get a lot. Um, And I, I don't, Mike, I don't know if I was unusual in that I never really experienced my gender as a barrier or that it made me different in any way, which is funny because I, I, it's not that I've only been in female dominated industries. I mean, there were more people named Robert in my MBA class than there were women. I'm not kidding. We had more Bobs and Robs than than females. Um, so I, you know, in the energy industry is definitely a male dominated industry. Retail tends to be much healthier in in the gender balance, but at the tops, still very, still more male heavy, and certainly in the Pentagon, um, you know, at the top, much more male heavy. For, for me in my career, my bigger challenge has typically been age. For whatever reason, I've uh, typically been quite a bit younger than my counterparts or the people I was managing. Um, but in, you know, in, in all cases, what I, what I suggest to people is do an amazing job at every job. Um, I will say that I have um, 
I have, I would say, suffered from um, one of the attributes that I think many female leaders and female professionals suffer from, which is a sense that um, women are a little bit less likely to step into a job that they haven't done before. Um, they tend to re- raise their hands less for less frequently, less readily for promotions until they're a thousand percent sure they can do it. Um, and, and of course, these are generalizations. This is not true for all men or for all women. But in you know, in general, men are a little bit more confident raising their hand saying, well, I haven't done it yet, but I'm pretty sure I can. Um, and I, who knows what drives that, whether the, it's societal or whatever. But I, I would encourage women to, uh, you know, to be brave and and stepping forward for opportunities that they're not quite sure they're ready for, but think they can and trust their leaders and mentors who tap them on the shoulder and say, you're ready. Come on up. Let's go do the next thing. Um, it, so, you know, that would be one that I would say. um I maybe I have experienced, but in terms of um, looking across my career, I have not felt some of the um, the gender based um, biases that that you read about. So I I'm not great on that one. Um, I do like to to mentor women to be very intentional about their educational choices. Mm. Um, and I'll give you I'll give you one example. Um, and this this is this again is um, in sort of the Sheryl Sandberg lean in kind of movement. One of the observations is that um, females tend to choose different majors in college and they tend to choose majors that don't ultimately even have a path to CEO and C-suite level roles. Uh, and so it's almost like they're creating a glass ceiling for themselves before they even get started. Uh, and I'll, I'll give you one example. I was uh, speaking, this was many years ago, at a, um, a, a business school conference for women in business at, at GW, George Washington University, which was my alma mater. And a young woman came up to me and she was uh, explained to me that she thought um, that she was facing some gender bias because she wasn't getting any calls back from internships that she was applying to. And she was really interested in being a, a sports business newscaster. Um, and George Washington University actually has a fantastic sports business program. So I said to her, oh, well, t- you know, tell me about your resume. What um, what other internships have you done? What classes have you done? What papers have you written uh, that might make you attra- an attractive candidate for this sports business internship you're, you're interested in? And she said, well, um, actually, I chose a major in uh, sociology because I thought that might be safer. And I haven't really taken any classes in sports business, um, but it's really what I'm passionate about. And, um, and I just don't know how to get that internship. And I said, well, maybe you need to start by changing your major, <laughs> you know, and it might not be a gender, um, a gender bias at all. It might be a, a bias towards um, students that are in the major and are studying the field that the internship is related to. And that was a great example in my mind of, of a, um, a female making a choice that felt safe to her and was a sort of more socially acceptable career path in sociology 
um, for females than maybe sports business, which is more sort of socially acceptable for, for males. Um, I never, I never don't know what happened to that young woman, but it was an instance where um, potentially she may have been thinking of something as a gender bias that uh, the gender component may have been influencing in a very different way. Interesting. Right? Really um, interesting. Broadly speaking, hiring is always cited as one of the most challenging parts of leading organizations and companies. What have you learned about hiring? Oh, goodness. Hiring. This is such a phenomenal topic, especially right now when the labor market is still very, very tight. Um, and there is a, a high demand for uh, professionals in the clean energy and sustainability field. Um I take a pretty particular approach to hiring. So a number of things um, that I've learned along the way. Uh, first, I think it's very important to have a diverse panel of interviewers. Hmm. Um, second, I think it's very important to consider a diverse range of thinking styles when asking questions of interviewees. And I'll go into each of these. Third, I think it's critical to see work samples in advance of hiring someone. Um, and fourth, I think it's really important, this is one's a little bit more obvious, to ensure that the candidates have ample opportunity to ask questions of you about the role. We all have uh, implicit biases, and we can do our best to see our implicit biases and try to mitigate them. Um, and obviously, the thing about an unconscious bias is that it's unconscious. So one way to help mitigate that is to have a diverse panel of interviewers. Um, so we always at SIBO, we have um, panels of interviewers from different levels of the organization, from different mm. teams, from different gender identities, racial identities, um, different educational backgrounds, to try to at least um, diversify the biases that may be brought to bear and help help one another question our assumptions and um and approach. It can feel maybe a little intimidating to the interviewee because they're interviewing with a panel from day one. Um, but in my, from my perspective, it's really an important way of getting a broad perspective. And the reality is everybody that you hire is going to work with people across the organization. And you would be surprised um, that, you know, there could be times when for the, for the hiring manager, they're completely sold on someone and you have two junior people who are like red flag, red flag, red, right? So it's really, that's really good to know during the interview process. We talk it through. We say, tell us more. Tell us, you know, what was, what was said? What was the approach that was a red flag for you? Help us understand. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's like, wow, boy, that was really legitimate. And this person's going to be working with, folks at all levels. And if, you know, if two of the interview panel both felt the same, chances are that's going to, you know, mm. ripple when this person's engaging across the team. Um, and other times it may be a, huh, that's really interesting. Let's go back and probe that a little bit more. Maybe, maybe it was a, you know, nerve, something that somebody said out of nervousness or, 
Um, so, so that's how we approach it. We, you know, we have we have conversation as an interview panel. Ultimately, there is a single hiring manager who makes the decision. But getting input from a broader set of colleagues, I have found to be incredibly useful. It is, it does require investment. I mean, you think about a four-person panel interviewing three people and then debriefing, it's it it's a significant investment of resources from the organization. But I also find that our our young people and our junior folks really love it. Uh, because they also get to observe the more senior people doing the interviews and how the senior folks are asking questions. Um, and it helps them grow as managers and leaders as they think about how they're hiring folks, too. That's really interesting. So. Okay. Converse process, firing people. What advice do you have on firing people? Oh, goodness. I wish none of us ever had to fire people. It's my least favorite part of the job. Um, so my advice is to um, not delay, um, but also be sure, be intentional, um, have compassion for the person who's being let go. It's a terrible thing to have happen uh, to you. And um and be very thoughtful and intentional about communicating to the team. You're never going to get it right every time because we there's I mean when it comes to personnel issues there are sensitive matters that that really can't be shared and shouldn't be shared and there's there's always going to be a level of ambiguity and uncertainty and anxiety that that ripples through the organization when someone has to be let go. Um, but I just wish none of us ever had to do that part of the job. It's not fun. Okay, this is my favorite question, and we've just started asking it like the last four or five interviews. What habits or practices or things, perhaps, have you found help Miranda Ballantyne perform at her best as a CEO? I have heard answers that range from, I go to the opera, to I get up at five o'clock in the morning, to I hike with my spouse on weekends to I work on old cars and anything in between. I'm really interested in particulars as well as principles. I do not go to the opera unless, unless my darling 25 year old cousin is dancing in the opera, which she does in New York. So I will bear the opera to, uh, to, to get to see my beautiful young cousin uh, dance. But um, so I, uh, for me, the... Uh, excuse me. How does orchids square with benign neglect? I, I, I'm not a, I am not actually, a gardener. Okay. Uh, so orchids get a bad rap because actually orchids do best when they are uh, when they get the right amount of sun and are mostly left alone. Most orchids can okay, right do, thrive with water every two weeks. If you forget a week, if you're traveling to COP in Egypt and you don't want to ask your husband to water 30 orchids, <laughs> they, they actually th thrive. Most people overwater orchids. Um, I, I have um, two two. Hobbies that I really have enjoyed in my, you know, the last 15 to 20 years. One is raising backyard chickens and the other is I have a goldfish pond in my backyard. 
both of them oh, are neat. incredibly peaceful. Um, and both of them survive um, some level of neglect pretty well. You put it, you put an automatic door on the chicken coop and you have a big thing of food and a big thing of water. And if you don't collect eggs for three days, that's okay. <laughs> right. But there it's incredibly rewarding to, to me. I love being a parent as well. Um, for a lot of those same reasons, but children don't do well with benign neglect. So that requires a lot more engagement. Um, And I I would only recommend that if you are sure you've got the time and passion and and thick skin for the children. (laughs) Otherwise, get an orchid. Children have to be watered more than every two weeks. (laughs) My son is now two inches taller than me as 17 years old and he likes to he likes to comment on the growth of my bald spots and i and i i'm just it's <laughs> helping me develop a thick skin so he's um he's the most beloved punk that i know but all right good <laughs> all right i got two closing questions one you look back on your career have you observed that organizational success is more reliant on what you don't do or what you do do what you do do why Probably not for the reason that you would think. I think from from building your organizational strategy, it's as much about what you don't do. But success is so reliant on people and culture. And culture cannot be cultivated by not doing. If you're not intentionally cultivating culture and cultivating people, Uh, Your culture will develop in ways that are not healthy or useful for the ability to achieve a mission. Are you a climate optimist or a climate pessimist and why? Well, I wish that I was able to pull up the Mahatma Gandhi quote right now um, because I'm not going to get it exactly right. But I will um, paraphrase Gandhi who says that he's an optimist that good will prevail, not necessarily because there's evidence that it will, but because it must. Um, And that's how I feel about the climate crisis. Uh, We have all the tools to solve the climate crisis. There are other crises and other challenges in the world that um, really to me feel much more challenging and there's not a clear answer but we know how to solve the climate crisis and i believe that humanity's um survival instinct is going to kick in and that we will we will solve it for ourselves and the current the current um ecosystem of biodiversity um at moments where i get really blue i take confidence in the fact that the earth is going to survive. Um, and, and I believe the earth will thrive after every great extinction, there's been a mass explosion of new life. Um, and to me, it's, it's a question of, can we continue to make this beautiful planet hospitable for us as humans? And I, I think we can, I think if you're not an optimist, it's very hard to be in this Miranda Ballantyne, thank you for taking your time and spending it with me. Thank you for your leadership lessons. Thank you, thank you for what you're doing at SEBA for this whole sector. I think that if anything saw us through the monkey wrenching of the Trump years, it was clean energy buying. 
I think it's one of the engines that continue to drive our sector's growth. And I feel good about you tending to that garden because I think you're doing a good job. And I just want to thank you for it. So I'm grateful that you came on the show. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate you having me and um, and the opportunity to share whatever lessons I've, I've had. Hopefully they were useful to somebody out there. And um, I've really enjoyed your other your other guests and look forward to, who, to listening to your future guests. So thank Thanks. You. Rail Manatine, thank you so much. Uh, Clean Techers will be back with another episode of Scaling Clean. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Scaling Clean, the podcast for clean economy CEOs, investors, and the people who advise them. I'm your host, Mike Casey. Our producer is Brian Mendez. If you like what you hear on Scaling Clean episodes, we'd appreciate it if you can give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, we wish you all the best in your clean tech endeavors.